Now, this isn't really a commonly heard argument, but in favor of man spreading, I just want to say that I think this kitten would really appreciate if I was able to spread a little bit more on this chair because he is barely holding on. We live in a time where the expectations for young people are pretty low. It seems like it's hard to be taken seriously when you're young, even in the church. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says to let no one look down on you for being young, but to set an example for others instead. Well, there's really no time like the present. So join me and my friends as we talk about what it means to be a young Christian today. My name's Alec, and this is Despised for Youth. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of DFY, which uh, as we all know stands for Double Feline Youth, because I happen to have adopted two kittens this past week. My wife and I, we've taken in two kittens that, uh, they're from a litter that one of my one of my med school classmates, her family found this, or no, 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 her neighbor found this litter of cats and they ended up taking them in. And long story short, we have these two 13-year-old kittens. So if you hear some, uh, hear some antics going on in the background, I can't, I can't do anything about it. I, I am trying my best. These guys have been in my office for the past couple days and I, I can't really let them out or anything. They're just not ready. They require too much supervision. One of them's currently in a sleepy time mood, so that's pretty good. I tried to time it well. The other one has been covering litter from, you know, he either, you know, he either number one or number two, and he's been trying to cover that thing for about five minutes now, so I, he might have like feline OCD or something. Christopherson! Gosh. All right. I think I got him. So you may notice there are going to be some random cuts in and out as I probably have to tend to my my little youngsters. So apologies for that. And in case anyone was wondering, their names are Ash and Christopherson because fantastic Mr. Fox. Anyways, thanks for tuning in to this episode or downloading or whoever you're doing it, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, that sort of thing. Uh, like I said, my name is Alec and I'm your host probably for for this episode grant is in alaska and you know we're gonna be going in and out i think the next episode will probably be grant and i but don't get confused we're doing another solo episode this week now when i started recording both my kittens were a little sleepy and so i thought that this would be a good time however now they are playing uh they're playing like a little cat game so if you've ever if you've ever had cats before you know that they like to play together and one of the one of the games, I believe my dad used to call it uh, Wildebeests Raging Across the Serengeti or something something like that. So they are proving to me that they are nocturnal creatures. So you may hear some some gallivanting, gallivanting little paws going around on our couch. And uh, it's uh, that's what gives this podcast character, am I right? Now, on this episode, I want to talk about something uh, that kind of bothers me that I just think we could use some conversation about, uh, particularly because it happens to be something that is more difficult for uh, people who are my generation and younger. It just seems to be that we have a problem with this probably because we're young and you know the whole point of this podcast is uh, we're trying to have theological conversations we're trying to discuss these issues so that when they come up and we participate in them we're informed and we can uh, we can speak wisely we can act wisely and we can 
not, first of all, make ourselves look like fools, but more importantly, that we cannot misrepresent the faith. And uh, it's very important that we are careful uh, on this issue, I I think specifically, and I think that's going to be a little more clear as I talk about it. So what I want to talk about is uh, the church, more more specifically, how we speak about the church. Now, uh, especially in probably the past year or two, and maybe longer, but I've only been more aware of it recently. I ha- I don't recall much uh, much of this going on in conversations I've been a part of longer than that. But I think we're very quick as millennials and Gen Zs to to talk negatively about the church. And I think that generally tends to be a problem. And the reason I think it generally tends to be a problem is because the way we tend to do it nowadays is not how it should be done. Now, uh, before before we get into that specifically, I want to back up a little bit and talk about what the church is uh, in more of an abstract sense. So not, not in, you know, it's the body of believers, but... Uh, you may have heard the church referred to as the bride of Christ. Now, you know, this is uh, something that's mentioned in the Bible. It's it's used by uh, New Testament authors uh, to reference the church as the bride of Christ. And, you know, sometimes they even call the church, you know, uh, when they're writing the epistles, they'll call them beloved or uh, something like that, alluding to this. Now, part of what inspired my thoughts on this comes from a book that I have tried several times to read, and I have never never finished it, but the first half, let me tell you, it's pretty good, and I've read it a couple times. So the book is called Why We Love the Church, and it's by Kevin DeYoung, and I believe Ted Cluck is the co-author. Now, uh, the main, you know, theme of this is in support of the church, but one of the things they talk about in the first half somewhere in there is that you can't love someone and hate their wife. Like, you can't have a really good friend and just not like their wife. It won't work out. And sure, I think, you know, you can think of sitcoms or whatever, or maybe there are situations in which you have a friend who uh, you're tight with, but you don't really like their wife, or for ladies, uh, you don't really like uh, her husband. Uh, Those tend to not be really deep friendships, because first of all, you're not being honest about Uh, your feelings. And if you have a dumb reason for disliking their spouse, you know, that just goes to show you're kind of, you're not being a good friend there. But if you have a good reason and you're not telling them and, you know, you let it get to this, you know, the point is that is not setting you up for a good relationship. Like if someone, if someone was really tight with me and then they wanted to talk bad about Tori, if they said anything bad about her, I would not be cool with that because, uh, nobody gets to talk about my wife like that, especially to me. Like if I overheard someone having a conversation on the side, that's one thing. But to me, that is even worse. So when we think about how we talk about the church, you have to remember that you're talking about Christ's bride. And it's not, it's not really cool with him when you bash the church in a way that is not helpful and is not edifying. So we have to keep that in mind that we can't love Jesus and just not like the church. You can't, you can't not want to be a part of the church. You can't want nothing to do with it. Uh, That is just like antithetical to how the New Testament believers 
acted and how uh, how we're told we should feel and think based on the writings in the New Testament. A second important thing is that as believers, we are part of the church and another image that's commonly used, and I'm sure you've heard if you've been in the church a while or read the Bible much, is uh, they, they refer to the church as a body, the body of Christ specifically, and we are members of that body. It often refers to us as different like body parts or organs like eyes, ears, arms, legs, that sort of thing. And there are different, different passages about like, can, you know, the eye say, because I'm not an ear or, or something, something like that. It might be ear and eye, but, uh, that all parts of the body are important. So you have to remember that when you attack the church with your words, you are also attacking yourself. And I don't mean that to say like, uh, like I know you are, but what am I? Like, you know, oh, stop hitting yourself. It's not like that. That, you know, that's obviously childish. But the point here is that uh, you have to you have to recognize that you are a part of this entity and you should be trying to represent it and you should be trying to improve it and edify it. And that because you are a part of this, this system as, you know, claimed by God, like God through the writers is telling you that you're a part of the church. If you're a true believer, this is the body that you're a part of when you attack it. Uh, can you think of a, an example where our own bodies attack themselves? Well, I can because I just took uh, the first medical board exam and had to study forever and it's called cancer. So, you know, medical stuff is on the mind, but I think most people are familiar with what cancer is. Now, cancer, uh, I think some people actually aren't familiar with like technically what it is, but uh, just kind of an interesting sidebar because I, I find it interesting. I hope that comes across uh, or I hope that translates to you finding it interesting as well. Now you can have tumors that aren't cancer and all a tumor is, is like an unregulated growth of cells. And so normally that isn't a problem, but things can happen that make that unregulated growth of cells worse. Now, one of those things is uh, cells, cells basically have two two main categories of restrictions. One of them is uh, like a density restriction and the other one is a, oh, there they go. And the other one is uh, like an attachment restriction. And you know, this obviously isn't technical, but uh, one of the problems with cancer um, is that it normally, normally cells are able to stop themselves from dividing when they get different signals from outside the cell. Some of this has to do with nutrients. So like if you're low on nutrients, cells are going to downregulate cell division because, you know, you don't have, an, you, you don't have enough to go around. It's like, you're not going to, you're not going to keep having babies intentionally if you're really poor and can barely feed the kids that you have. And then secondly, uh, cells will also I'm sorry if I'm a bit distracted, the cats keep running around, but uh, so cells can be downregulated in cell division if there's lack of nutrients or if they're too dense because, you know, you don't want to keep expanding if you don't have the room for it. And that's why tumors can be very dense and vascularized, like they can have a lot of arteries coming into them because they're, they're trying to supply all these cells. But what makes cancer malignant is that it's able to detach and float off. And so uh, it can be through the lymph, uh, the lymph system, or it can also be through the blood. And uh, those are both like a, a specifically what makes cancer aggressive is the, the invasion and the transportation. So uh, essentially what happens with cancer is something uh, goes wrong with the regulation and the body starts draining from itself. Like it saps things away from itself and it essentially starves 
uh, starves your body to death. Um, a lot of, there are a lot of other effects. That's an oversimplification. Like there's things where, you know, it can cause, it can press on things and cause greater problems. But the main point is that your body is going rogue and it's, uh, it's basically destroying itself. Now that cancer sidebar, I will admit that was, that was unnecessary. I'm willing to admit that, but I hope you learned something and it was a little interesting. Now, that's what attacking the body, I, I would say. Like, that's synonymous with cancer. But uh, another, another, we're going to expand this this metaphor. We're going to keep this going, or this illustration. I don't know if it's a metaphor, but uh, I don't do English class anymore. But your body also has another means of protecting itself that is technically attacking itself. Now, this is the immune system. Now, there are a different, uh, you know, different categories of the immune system, like there's humoral and there's cell-mediated, and, um, you know, you can uh, you can get even more granular. But what I'm talking about specifically, and we're going to get a little granular here, is there are these things called cytotoxic T-cells. Now, you've probably heard of helper T-cells, but they're also cytotoxic T-cells. These are kind of like the, the two main guys. Now, what they do is they go around and they essentially check on your cells like they look and they see if any proteins are being expressed on the outside that are abnormal and this can happen through mutation it can happen through viruses uh viral particles being on there um there you know there are different reasons why something might be going wrong but what they do is when they detect this they essentially cause that cell to die um and this is this is a is a controlled death. It's not, it's not like some sort of rogue thing, but they go around and they destroy cells that are infected and compromised. Now, this is a good analogy for uh, the body image because in this case, we're not talking about something malicious that's going to harm the body. We're talking about like a controlled surgical uh, attack, so to speak, that serves to help the body in the long run. Now, this is, uh, I would say like rebuke and edification. Now, that's how we're going to distinguish these things. So if you think about attacking in the, the way that I'm saying you shouldn't be doing, that's like cancer. You're, you're ultimately not helping the body. You're, uh, you're harming it. Whereas the immune system, you are helping the body remain faithful. And body, in that case, meaning church. You're helping the church body to remain faithful to God and, uh, you know, help it function normally. So there is a place for criticism about the church, but uh, we'll get more into that in a little bit here. So the main problem that I want to address is very broad. It's when people will attack the church in a way that does not give any edification or a benefit of the doubt to, to the church. And uh, I wish I could be a little more specific, but I think the examples that I will go through a little bit will uh, help that land a little bit more and make it a little bit more understandable and memorable. So like I said uh, just a minute ago, some criticisms do have merit. There are places where we can say, you know, this church exists in a neighborhood that's 80% Hispanic, yet, like, I don't know, 90% of the congregation is black. What's the deal with that? And I just picked random races there, obviously. But uh, that that's a real question that probably merits a real answer because essentially what you might be finding there is that there's something going on in this church that is not drawing in people from the community, which is basically what the goal of the church would be if, you know, planted in that area, I would assume. So some criticisms like that have merit. You can also 
uh, make criticisms that go to the church more broadly. Like you could say that the church uh, in America, I think it'd be very hard to make a fair criticism of the worldwide church. So we're just going to go to like America. You could say the church in America did not do a good job of remaining faithful and sticking to gospel issues when it comes to like COVID or something. Like you could say that some churches were too quick to say everyone needs to get the vaccine. If you don't, it's a sin. Or maybe some churches said that no one should get the vaccine and that, you know, we shouldn't let the government do this or that. And that's not to say that neither of those uh, positions would have any merit. But what I'm saying is uh, there are ways that the church could potentially in many churches, not to say the church as a whole, because that would be very hard to do, could be representing itself in a way that harms the mission of the gospel. Uh, we all fall short. Church leadership can fall short. And even a majority of church leadership can, you know, fall short. It's all conceivable. Now, that is very different from saying things that I think you should not say, and you especially should not say to people outside of the church, because you're going to harm uh, the ability of the gospel to get out there. Now, those criticisms are decidedly different than criticisms that are driven uh, primarily by worldly narratives and have a lot to do with doctrine and make accusations that are a lot more subjective. Uh, now, it'll come as no surprise when I say uh, particular areas that I think the church has difficulty with are critical race theory, um, more specifically racial issues just in general, and then also issues of, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, uh, and other things of that nature. So this is where I think that people in my generation and younger have a difficult time. Uh, it's a good thing to have compassion, obviously, and you want people to understand the gospel and that Christ does not condemn people for their sin in the sense that he would withhold the gospel from them. Of course, Christ would condemn sin as sin, but uh, that's not to say that anyone is not welcome to, to hear from Christ and to uh, receive God's word. But this desire to show compassion and to sort of do like an apologetics for the church often takes the form of attacking the church. Now, th this is where I think the problem is. It's one thing to say that the Bible, uh, you know, says XYZ about sin with sexuality, and the church has had some difficulty in relating to people who often just want to write it off based on its doctrinal statements versus saying that the church is uh, has been hateful or has been historically unwelcoming to uh, people who would identify as LGBT. And the reason this is a problem is because first of all, we can't we can't generalize the church on an issue like that because something like that is either an issue of doctrine or it's an issue of a local church body. So for doctrine, essentially you would be saying that because the church has a morality for sexuality that is uh, biblically derived, it is repelling to people outside the church who uh, have other convictions about that. Now, if that's what someone is saying, that's a true statement. Like there are doctrines in the church that people outside the church are not going to like. And I think Jesus is pretty clear that people would not always like the truth and people would not always like Christians for preaching the truth. And that's something that you you should not be criticizing the church for, for holding doctrine like that. Now, the key distinction to make here is that if someone is making the case that because the church believes these things, it is bad at relating to or being accepting of LGBT plus people, 
that's a narrative that we can't accept because essentially that's an argument that unless we affirm or, you know, celebrate or at least don't disavow sin for sin, then we are automatically being hateful and unwelcoming. And honestly, like, if that's the case, like that, that's just sucks. Like there's, there's nothing we can do about that specifically. And that's an, that's an accusation that we have to take with a grain of salt because essentially someone's attacking our doctrine, not our, uh, not our delivery and not our behavior, not our attitude. Uh, but there are cases where when we're not talking about doctrine, when we're talking about local church bodies, it's reasonable to say that maybe a church has issues with that. Maybe a church has no idea what to do when someone with like even blue hair just comes in, you know, whether they're LGBT or not. Um, I mean, certainly more conservative churches are probably, they probably don't see a lot of that. That's maybe valid criticism. But if that is a valid criticism, it's totally wrong to take that experience of how a church handles certain people and certain situations and project that across the church as a whole. Because in order to make a statement like that, you have to have knowledge of how churches all over America are doing that. And you have to say that the scales are tipped. And that's a very arrogant position to take. So when it's doctrinally, we have to make sure that we're working from the right narrative. And if it's a, if it's a matter of behavior, we have to we have to recognize that we are limited in our ability to make that statement. So to give another example here, uh, if we're talking about racial issues, it's wrong to say that the church as a whole has been historically uh, pro-slavery or been racist or things like that. And this this is one that you might have uh, you might have to make a different distinction between doctrine and behavior because doctrinally it is pretty much inarguable that the Bible is against uh, the slavery that was practiced in America. Now, uh, I did some research on slavery, and here's here's an, an interesting fact, or I, I shouldn't say I did research. I should say I came across uh, something interesting on Reddit, and I was made aware, and I double-checked, and apparently, I think it was either BBC or Discovery.com affirmed this, that the word slave comes from the word Slav, because I want to say it was like in the like the 12th century or something like that. Uh, what was it? Spanish Spanish Muslims or it, it was Muslims in a country that I, I was like, I didn't know that they had a history of this, but I, I'm just going to say Spanish Muslims. I am very sorry. Please double check this. Uh, Spanish Muslims took as slaves people from Slavic regions, and so they called them Slavs or slaves, and uh, that is a very, very crude version of me trying to retell this, and that's where the word slave comes from. In the Bible, when we talk about slavery, essentially they were talking about indentured servitude, and servitude, more specifically, that was entered upon uh, voluntarily for the most part. And maybe that's not what indentured means. I might've just, uh, kind of shot myself in the foot there, but we're talking about slavery where essentially someone has a debt that they need to pay off. And so they willingly enter into slavery. And most of these servitudes had terms where they would end. Now there are instances where, you know, uh, Egypt takes Israel as slaves. That was a bit different, but, uh, in the new Testament where Paul writes about things and he, he essentially says, you know, if you're a slave, like say a slave, if you're a master, say a master or something like that, I probably just butchered the Bible. Um, 
he's not referring to what was practiced in America where people were taken against their will and uh, forced into labor and treated horribly. He's not justifying that. He's not making a defense of that. So uh, doctrinally, there is no room to say that the church ever believed that. There may be churches in which uh, doctrine was distorted, but the church of God has never never been for that. And so that's that's kind of a more difficult issue where we have to be willing to say that, yeah, there were some churches that probably were not faithful to the scripture and they, they probably used verses out of context to justify things. I don't know. I wasn't around back then. Most of this, I think, happens to be secondhand. Uh, and you, and you could you could maybe say that that is you know racism that's passed on down but what what we what we can't do is we can't only assign the negatives of certain churches to the church as a whole and not be willing to assign the positives of certain churches to the church as a whole it makes absolutely no sense like it's completely unfair to say that the church was racist because you know some people did this and so yeah the church has a history of this without also saying that there were many Christians and many churches who were absolutely against slavery and fought hard for its abolition and not say that the church also has a history of abolitionism and championing championing uh, racial equality uh, under the eyes of the law because that's uh, how racial equality is under the eyes of God uh, and just ignore that. That's that's ridiculous. And that, again, comes back to letting the world set the narrative where some people want to make certain cases and they want to make certain arguments against the church. And normally that's not for actual ed- edification reasons. It's not to uh, build up the church or help refine it. And it's not done in good faith. So uh, more on the doctrine issue or broadly we have to remember that we need to be fair to the church historically, both with the limited knowledge that we have, and also by not only ascribing negative things of some churches to everyone and, you know, ignoring the positives. I think we have to be willing to take history as messy as it is. So uh, maybe, maybe don't say that the church has a history of being racist or the church has not handled race well, because some churches do, and that's kind of rude to say, uh, to say that and, and totally ignore the the hard, faithful work of many Christians in many churches uh, throughout history. Now, when it comes to local churches, it, it makes sense that you could say that some churches had that problem. Uh, but again, you can't project that across all of the church in America because you don't have knowledge of all the church in America. So I picked these two issues, specifically race and uh, the whole LGBT issue. One, because I see a lot of those conversations happening. And I say see because it's primarily on the internet because I don't get out much anymore, especially with these cats that are finally asleep. Thank goodness. Can't you see I'm recording a podcast here? And these issues tend to be primarily driven by people who are not inside the church. Now, uh, there's no it's no secret that critical race theory has been a big talking point lately. And then the whole LGBT movement, I don't really know how to put that into an ideological term, I'm sure there is one that I'm that's just escaping me, has also been a talking point, but for longer. And these are both uh, ideologies that are pushed by people outside the church who have narratives of their own and are going to evaluate progress and what's good and what's bad on their own. Uh, and we have to be careful as Christians to not allow our definitions of good and our definitions of, uh, I guess, progress to be 
swayed and defined by people who are not in the church and are not arguing from a a biblical standpoint. And this is particularly difficult in this day and age because I think a lot of the attacks that we see against the church come in the form of trying to make people feel like bad people. If you vocalize various uh, church doctrines that have been widely held and affirmed for a long time and across many different cultures uh, throughout history, you're you're at risk of being called one of the many isms like uh like if you're a racist or a transphobic or sexist or misogynist you know any any of those things uh the ists and the isms and the phobias uh, you're going to be called one of those and this kind of serves to make it so you can't feel like a good person and that that's hard like i'm not going to i'm not going to sit here and say that that doesn't have an effect on people and you know different people are going to have different uh, ways that it affects them depending on how they tick you know some people are more driven by how other people think of them and they're more driven by what people say like i happen to be particularly driven by what people say in a positive way like if you tell me i'm funny or smart i'm probably gonna like you a lot because i like hearing those things i mean we all have things we like hearing but uh i'm not as affected when people will tell me like i'm a bad person if i don't think they they actually know me or have any any real insight into who I am. Now, some people are very sensitive to that. Some people have a hard time not uh, not defining themselves based on what people around them think of them. And uh, I think it's, it's fair to say that people in the church may have this issue as well, but they are more likely, like me, to listen to people who are close to them and who often, you know, are in the church. Like if my wife said that I was doing something wrong or that I did something that was, I can't even imagine her saying I'm a bad person because that'd be so, so terrible to hear from her. But, uh, like if she said that I would be very much affected by that. So, uh, there is an attack to try and make people feel like they're bad people, whether that's intentional or unintentional, that's kind of the effect that's coming in. And we have to be careful that we don't let this pressure push us to, you know, friendly fire on the church. Like it, it's it's very easy to make the uh, the little social exchange of street cred and you know uh, virtue and uh, I'm not a bad person uh, for you know saying some things about the church. Like you can say the church has historically been pretty racist, and, you know, and has not welcomed LGBT, or you know, you can say anything and say, and we need to recognize that, and we need to change that, we need to do better you know, insert any of the things there. And kind of what you're doing there is you're setting yourself up a little bit to say, look, I'm, I'm on the right side of things. Like I'm, I'm for what's good and should be for what's good, obviously. Uh, but you have to be careful of where you're getting that definition. Like, are you letting forces influences, I should say, not forces, like psychic waves or something, electromagnetic energy. Are you letting influences outside the church persuade you to advocate for certain things as good and as progress that wouldn't be derived directly from the Bible? Or are you primarily trying to be faithful through your understanding of the word to, you know, support what's good and what would be progress? And in fact, I don't really even think uh, the church should be using the word progress because I, I think that generally has been adopted by uh, political movements and uh, philosophies that are 
just like secular philosophies, there's really no good way I can think of using that in a faith-based context of like progress, unless you're like, yeah, we're, you know, we really made progress in talking about, you know, gospel issues there. Like that's, that's like the only instance I can think of, but I get, again, I'm just going to underscore because it's hard to do a podcast on your own. And, uh, sometimes I'm worried my thoughts don't come through clear. We have to be careful that we're not selling the church out in exchange for street cred and people affirming us and thinking that we're not bad because that's, that's like kind of what Judas did in a sense, like not to draw a huge comparison. Like I hate when people say like, Oh, well, you know, Hitler had a mustache. And so everyone who's white and has a mustache is like a Nazi. You know, I hate when people say stuff like that. So I'm not going to say like, well, you're like Judas, but uh, like being a betrayer of the church, not a good look. Like, betraying other Christians, betraying the Bible, uh, not good. Now, we're going to make a big distinction here. There are times where you're going to, hopefully, you know, you care about your local church and you're invested. There are going to be times where you're going to have to make a stand for what's on your conscience, uh, like Martin Luther did, in the sense of, you know, Scripture is clear. Like, I see this directly in Scripture. My conscience is, you know, is clear before God. I can't, I can't deny this. And people might say, oh, well, you're betraying the church. You know, you're betraying God. Um, that's a totally different issue. Like we're not talking about church in arguments, like trying to faithfully search for the truth. And, you know, maybe there are some bad actors who are quick to throw accusations around. And maybe there are some, some bad actors who are quick to, uh, call people betrayers. But, uh, in this case, we're talking about, when you're making claims, basically, usually to the world and to people outside the church, sometimes in the church, uh, or driving certain ideologies that are not primarily from the Bible um, in in a way that really is kind of self-serving and uh, a defense against being attacked by the world because um, that's what you fear. So big distinction there. So Last thing I want to go over that I think is sort of the antidote to this is we need to make sure that the world is not the one setting the narrative and setting what's good and what's bad. So this can be hard the less uh, you're putting into your mind from the Bible and from positive influences. So this is kind of hard for me to say because I have... I've been having a difficult time with Bible reading the past week or two. Some of that has to do with having guests. Some of that has to do with having kittens that need like every freaking moment of my attention or they go bananas. Um, and I've, you know, I've tried, but <laughs> like it's, it hasn't been where I wanted it to be. Uh, so uh, take this with a grain of salt because I'm not perfect at this. Probably an unnecessarily long caveat, but you know, caveat nonetheless. We that's what we do around here. We make caveats before we say things. Now, the more that we're putting into our mind about uh, what pleases God, God's character, uh, you know what what Jesus commanded us, the more likely we're going to be able to come at these issues faithfully and uh, in in a way that is biblically sound. Now, that's not to say that you know, it's a linear relationship. And you know, the more faithful you are with your Bible reading, the more faithful God's going to be with your sanctification. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. As opposed to primarily uh, letting your influences be, I don't know, like Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, things like that. Um, I don't know, Disney right now, they're kind of they're kind of doing a thing Nickelodeon. I, this is getting very relevant, uh, unnecessarily so. 
So let's go through these examples again. Uh, one accusation I've heard from people in the church against the church is that the church is not loving towards LGBT people. So again, let's go back. Narrative. What is love towards people outside the church? What would we learn from scripture on this? Uh, we might learn that, you know, Jesus, he looks over Israel and he says, like, or he looks at them as sheep without a shepherd and, you know, he loves them. There's the man who comes and asks him, what do I need to do to enter heaven? All I, you know, I've done all this since I was a youth. And in Mark, it says he looked at him and loved him. Um, we can see that Jesus had a heart for people outside the church. He, you know, he's been known, he's been accused of dining with sinners, tax collectors, you know, the people like that. He had mercy on prostitutes who were caught uh, in the middle of adultery. Th things that were, uh, actually that woman wasn't a prostitute, she was just, just an adulteress, but anyways... Jesus clearly had compassion for people outside the church, and that took the form of being kind, uh, often being very gentle in the way he spoke with people, but also speaking the truth, uh, uh, most of the time not like 100% of the truth right away, but you know, doled out wisely. Like Jesus was very wise in how he talked to people and how he presented the gospel. Like he, you know, he's known for having these interesting back and forths between certain people that kind of really meets them where they're at. Now, that's how Jesus loved people, and he gave them the gospel. But if we're taking the definition of love, or we're allowing the, the narrative of what's loving and uh, welcoming of LGBT people to be defined by, um, we're just going to pick an amorphous group, like just kind of cultural, what I would assume the culture would say. It would say things like, you know, if you view that as a sin, like that's unloving, that's hateful. Like you can't do that. Um, they would say that, you know, if you're not affirming or celebrating, like that's because you're actually transphobic or you're homophobic and um, like you're just letting that show. You know, there are any sorts of accusations that could be levied because ultimately uh, the narrative of what's loving is coming down to affirming and accepting behavior, not how you're interacting with a person. Like there's no ability to disagree on morality or disagree on whether or not there is a morality about an issue. It's just, if you oppose this, then you are unloving. And if we allow that narrative to be set, then obviously we're going to be able to levy accusations against the church and maybe feel that those accusations are valid. Um, so I think the antidote here is to, when you meet those accusations and maybe you're like, wow, the church has not been welcoming, you know, even though I kind of went over my, uh, my thoughts on making generalized statements like that maybe check that against how we see that happening in the Bible and then compare the church to that. Like I can say that there are churches I've been a part of that have been really great at welcoming like anyone. Like they're not, you know, they're not asking people their sexuality at the door or anything. And it generally it doesn't matter. Like they're there to accept people who are coming and, you know, preach the gospel. And that's that. And then I'm sure there are churches out there who don't do that, but I can't speak to that. Let's go to the second example uh, where I was talking about racial issues. Now, uh, I think first we have to ask, what place does race have in the Bible? Like, in, are there places where it's talked about in there? We're setting up the biblical narrative here, like uh, trying to derive it, see, see what uh, we can glean from the Bible on how these issues were handled. Now, we can find different places where uh, in the Old Testament, you know, there was Israel and there were the Gentiles and how God... 
uh, you know, had a special uh, sort of destiny, a special journey for Israel to, to go on. And then in the New Testament, we see Israel is expanded to like a spiritual Israel, and that includes Gentiles and Israelites as well, um, and not even all Israelites, as we see in Romans, how, uh, you know, Paul gives this long example about Abraham and Isaac and, uh, or not Isaac, yeah, you know, Isaac and Ishmael, excuse me. And we also see uh, Peter has a vision in which God essentially, you know, tells him that, uh, it's it's through the form of like talking about food and like things being clean or unclean and essentially uh, affirming like the church as open to Jews and Gentiles. And um, and we see places in the New Testament where it specifically says like there's neither uh, Jew, Jew nor Gentile, there's neither Hebrew nor Greek, slave nor free, like all everyone is equal in the eyes of God, like the church is the church and it's not defined by race. That is the narrative. But we also see places where it says like, you know, do not, uh, and this is the new Alec version, um, basically like accept the foreigner and the immigrant and do not, you know, like despise them, don't turn them away. Uh, That's me (laughs) very vaguely referencing Old Testament passages. So clearly there are times where uh, these things come up and uh, the church has to be, you know, welcoming towards all people and especially have an eye for people who are, um, you know, kind of cast out, they're disadvantaged, uh, you know, d- things like that. Like they're, they're in a vulnerable spot. That's essentially what it was because being a foreigner, uh, in those old Testament scenarios was different than being a foreigner now. Like most of the time, if you're a foreigner now, like you've moved and you live there and I don't know, like you open a business or something, or, you know, you try to find work or you're a tourist. And both of those tend to be, uh, like pretty okay situations. But uh, oftentimes then, and I think there are times now where this also applies, but th- that's just to say, like, we're talking about what percentage of the situation this typically is, where a majority of the time, what we're talking about in these scenarios that are mentioned in the Bible is people, you know, they're, they're in a place, like they're not, they're not established or anything and they're vulnerable. Like they, they need a place to stay. Like they need people to, uh, to help them find like resources and that same that same principle applies today as well. But we're not specifically just saying like, oh, you're not from around here. We're going to treat you special. Like, that's not the point. Obviously, we're we're talking about meeting a need and like people who are uh, people who are vulnerable. And that's a lot of why we see talk of orphans and widows as well, because they were especially vulnerable back then, uh, not having means of providing for themselves. Um, less so today with orphans and widows, because we have governments that have programs and we also have just a society that's better able to uh, take care of take care of people who are in those situations but that is a a civics issue and we're not talking about civics today so that's kind of our narrative from the bible about uh race you know uh foreigners that sort of thing so if we allow i don't know like critical race theory to define how race is handled uh we can point to people like Robin D'Angelo who is you know one of the one of the key people in critical race theory nowadays. She's one of the big proponents and one of the big influencers. She's known for writing a book. White Fragility is the, uh, that's the one she's most known for, but she's written other books. She does a lot of racial trainings and stuff. She is noted as saying, the question is not, 
did racism occur in a situation, but how did racism manifest in that situation? So that is to say, racism is the natural state of affairs. It is not the outlier. Um, these ideas in critical race theory, which is kind of, you know, it's the hot thing now, um, they assume that any racial disparity, any any difference in, you know, when we crunch the numbers, that's because of power disparities and people being oppressed. Now, if we take that, that narrative, and we put that on the church, then we would say, like, any church that's not completely ethnically representative of the surrounding area is racist. It's oppressing. And uh, any any instance in which there are interactions between black and white church members, if, you know, if anyone feels uncomfortable for any reason, or if, if anyone suggests anything and there's any disagreement, like, th these are racism issues, and they need to be dealt with as racism issues. Now, we don't believe that racism is the ordinary state of affairs uh, from the Bible. Like, there's there's nothing in the Bible that we would assume that. And to, to take that as, like... Uh, the sin that drives all behaviors is sort of a redefining of sin. Like we know that sin does drive the problems in the world and does, does drive like conflicts. Like we know in James, it says, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you. It's the, your, your desires waging war in, in your heart, essentially. Sorry, there's a cat. Get down, stop climbing. And so sin is the, the driving force of all conflict that we have. But racism is not the only sin. There are a lot of sins. And to, to paint racism as the, the key reason why there are all the issues in society is to allow the world to define sin and define what's wrong with the world. So obviously we can't do that. Now, uh, if we take the biblical principles that we have, though, we can see that there are instances in which uh, racial disparities in the church might be a problem. And I think this is an issue that is too granular to get into. It's too... Uh, church specific. Um, there are various reasons why you might have a different representation in church membership uh, than the surrounding community. Some that are, you know, benign reasons, some that are, are maybe sin, sin derived reasons. And I think we can't get into that. But the point here is to say that uh, if we take a biblical approach to these things, we're much more likely to arrive at biblical truth and solution. But if we allow how we handle issues of race to be dictated by worldly influences, we are much more likely to arrive at a sinful solution. Now to wrap this up a bit, I'm certainly one to speak their mind, and I'm pretty quick to to give my opinion when I think, you know, something is wrong or could be improved. But lately I have had more of a conviction that I need to be very careful with how I, how I do that. And I remember once hearing a conversation with uh, one of my old pastors. Um, I think I was just kind of like the third person listening in on the conversation, but uh, he was saying that, you know, he's heard a lot of people who will, you know, they'll say things about like their wife or their kids that they really shouldn't. And it always, you know, rubs them the wrong way where um, they'd be willing to say like, oh, yeah, you know, my wife's like annoying or whatever. And or like sometimes she gets like that more realistically. You know, no one's just gonna be like, my wife's annoying. This isn't like this isn't a sitcom. Um, and he, he was basically making the point that sometimes people will feel comfortable saying things to other people that uh, that's really going on in their hearts that they might not otherwise say. And maybe it's just joking around, but, you know, as they say, like, every joke has 
a kernel of truth in it. There is that sin in someone's heart, but also there's a sin in having the lack of lack of discernment and uh, just like, I don't know, just general lack of self-awareness and, and unforgiveness and not being willing to be patient that you would say something uh, about your wife or your kids to someone else. Um, that's just derogatory. And uh, that always kind of stuck with me. And I've tried to be careful that I don't, I don't ever talk bad about my wife. Uh, and, you know, more broadly, like my friends and whatnot in front of or to other people. Um, because I think when we say things, you know, we're often legitimizing those, uh, those feelings, and, and we're, we're kind of adopting them in a sense like we're taking ownership of them and um so when you say those things about you know your wife or whatever uh you're probably making yourself feel that a little more but the you know i'm we're sidetracking here and i think we need to have this attitude with the church as well where uh we need to be very careful about when we're willing to say negative things about the church broadly. Like we should be very careful about saying things about the church, capital C broadly, but we should also be careful about our local church because that's the body that we're a part of. Like my local church, I'm a member of that body and I should be trying to edify it and I should not be quick to say anything negative. And, uh, Negative is kind of a relative term, so I think it's more accurate to say I should not be saying anything that's not constructive for the most part. Like, there are times to vent, there are times to be frustrated and talk with people and get input and wisdom, but uh, when we're when we're talking to people outside the church, we need to be especially careful of how we talk about the bride, because, like, that's Christ's bride, and we need to represent it well, because Christ loves it, we should love it, we're a part of it. And, you know, a third, a, a third thing. I set myself up to say three things, and I didn't have a third thing to say, so it's making me miss Grant doing these on my own. They're kind of hard to keep talking uh so everyone wish him well pray for him in alaska maybe consider supporting him i don't know strangers on the internet giving him money that sounds legit uh anyways thanks for tuning in to this episode of despised for youth uh, i hope you enjoyed it i hope it was helpful if my ideas were scattered if you don't like what i said then uh i don't know what to tell you i got two kittens here so it's pretty hard for you to make me feel bad about that but i hope they were helpful to you i hope you can take this as edifying because that's the spirit it was intended in and i also hope you'll join me on the next one also the flavor of the day is turkey in honor of the wet cat food that i've been giving i forgot to do this at the beginning but yeah flavor of the day is turkey thanks for listening